0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the seven AM Novel Passages of Summer edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now we all know that the early pages of a novel or a story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from one of my favorite authors and friends, Daphne Calatay, who's going to share with us the first pages of her short story, Relativity, from her recently released short story collection, The Archivist. Good morning, Daphne. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for being with us. Daphne Calatay is the author of the fiction collections, Calamity and Other Stories, shortlisted for the Story Prize and The Archivist, winner of the 2021 Grace Paley Prize, as well as three award-winning novels, the national and international bestseller, Russian Winter, which won the Writers League of Texas Fiction Award, Sight Reading, winner of the New England Society Book Award in Fiction, and Blue Hours, a Massachusetts Book Awards Must Read. She has received fellowships from the Christopher Ishaward Foundation, Yaddo, gosh, Boligalsko? I don't, I don't know how to pronounce Boliosko. it. <laughs> That's my bad Italian. I should have read this over before. Okay, everyone. Michelle has bad Italian. Anne McDowell and has taught literature and creative writing at Princeton, Middlebury College, Boston University, and Harvard University. She lives in Somerville, Massachusetts. Okay, Daphne, save me from myself, and please give me a quick summary of the mm-hmm. book.
1: Sure. So first of all, well, The Archivist is a short story collection, um, and the the stories all have to do with uh, memory, history, how we make sense of our lives and convey our truths to others. And uh, the story Relativity, which kicks off the collection, is about a social worker who works for an agency that aids Holocaust survivors. So they are of course elderly and the uh, point of view character, this young man uh, spends his days kind of going from household to household, uh, visiting these elderly clients who long ago in their lives uh, survived this historical calamity and becomes a a sort of um, living uh, vessel of their stories and anecdotes of that time at least the ones who are vocal and and share um a little snippets maybe of that past or of that history and that's Uh, what meanwhile meanwhile meanwhile, he has his own um recent
0: yeah
1: calamity that he has lived through and that he's not really sharing Uh, so there are sort of two storylines that interweave
0: yeah and it's just it's done brilliantly so in this story was chosen for the Boston Book Festival. What do they call theirs? All story? Oh, one one city, one story. One city, one story prize. And you guys will be able to tell why. It's just a touching story. It's just a beautiful story. Okay, let's listen to the first few pages of it.
1: Sure, relativity. According to the notes in her file, Roja Fisher, aged 99 of 124 Babcock Street, was dying. Her heart and kidneys were on the verge of failure not to mention the raw sore on her foot from one of those new antibiotic-resistant infections. Yet hospice had trundled her home and abandoned her after she insisted she wanted no more to do with them. Robert, who had overseen Roja Fisher's case for the past four years, sat uneasily beside the hospital-issued bed. we provide a contract lawyer free of charge, he explained, part of the dour conversation that was among his duties. He would also, again, be coordinating Rosa Fisher's remaining doctor's visits, food delivery, hygiene services, and the aides who came to run errands and see that she took her pills. Though the doctor, a fellow by the name of Turley, hadn't seemed particularly insistent about the pills. For any legal documents you may need, Robert continued, though it felt wrong to him now. Our services include... Bring me the grocery flyer." Roja Fisher's voice, with its sharply trilled Rs, sounded to Robert as strong as ever. Though instructed to perform only tasks within his purview, he found the Sunday Globe where the weekend aide had tossed it and searched for the slippery pages of the Star Market Circular. Bright images of sliced cantaloupe, grilled salmon, water-spritzed green grapes. He handed the insert to Roja Fisher. Slowly, so slowly, she pointed a long forefinger. In the past year, her bones seemed to lengthened, flattened. Her chest was concave, her knobby shoulders and elbows like the joints of a marionette. Melon is on special, if they look good, buy two. Robert tried not to squirm on the hard wooden chair. I'm sure your afternoon aid will be happy to. Also some ground beef, 80% okay, nothing leaner. Mrs. Fisher, I've started, I've restarted Meals on Wheels for you. He had done so despite her habit of preserving certain dishes, sometimes for weeks to display on his monthly visits in order to prove their unappetizing nature. Two dollars for grapefruit is criminal. Please, Mrs. Fisher, Dr. Turley says your heart. Robert. Rosa Fisher lay back on the lo- oh, and let the pages rest atop the knit blanket. Dr. Turley is very nice, but he is not so smart. Robert hoped no reaction showed on his face. Dr. Turley was the agency's go-to doctor because he made house calls. That appeared to be his main talent. I want to tell you something, Robert. Rosa Fisher looked surprisingly regal for someone propped on a mechanized bed. Her hair was gray and only slightly thinned, her milky eyes alert. I see that your wife is not feeding you. Normally he would have laughed. It was true he had lost weight in the months since the baby was born. I appreciate your concern, Mrs. Fisher, but I'm here today to discuss your plans. We provide a lawyer and other services. I have done my will, thank you. Ah, good. There was also the matter of the funeral. Outstanding bills, whom she would want contacted at her death. Robert had been trained to discuss these preparations. Indeed, he had navigated such conversations many times over the past years, proceeding calmly, point by point, through the brochure the agency provided. Now, though, the very notion of such planning seemed to him obscene. He placed the brochure, timely decisions, on the bedside table within her reach. You might find this helpful why don't i come again on friday when you've had time to read it not that it had ever seemed to him right to discuss death as a simple business matter some clients responded with affront; front others like roja fisher appeared generally unfazed perhaps at such a great age death no longer frightened or perhaps when you've survived auschwitz buchenwald and the surgical replacement of two hips Death seems something you might cheat indefinitely. And also
0: right. wonderful. Okay. Um, and everyone, uh, you can follow along with this discussion the uh, link. It's actually an Amazon link, sadly, <laughs> that you can look Sorry. at the pages, um, but you can read the rest of the story there. And I'm also providing a link to our bookshop page where you can purchase the book and help out some local bookstores. Okay. Uh Daphne, so this story starts off extremely well. According to the notes on her file, Rosia Fisher, age ninety-nine of one twenty-nine Babcock Street, was dying. So we are at this moment of change, which is very important for a short story, and at a moment of change that has a lot of stakes. Um, in truth, though, this story felt to me like it was more Robert's story than Rosia's, and um, and let you yes, let you start with. Rosia so why that decision
1: you know uh it's interesting because i feel that if i'm remembering correctly i think i actually had earlier drafts that began in robert's perspective and somehow they never seemed to be working correctly and i can't quite remember why but um It had something to do with getting enough information across. And I remember struggling a lot when I was writing the opening section of this story. You know, sometimes stories begin easily and then it's, you know, the second page that's the problem, right? It's getting things moving. Mm -hmm. Other times it's the opening two paragraphs or first paragraph that just dog you for for months. And it's either it's because you're having trouble entering in, and it sometimes has to do the point of view, and that was partly what was happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have, it's Robert's point of view, uh, but this other character kind of recurs throughout the story, Yeah, right? Robert goes from household to household, but she's the one that we see a few times. And I think partly I wanted to signal she's important. Yeah. Uh, But I had to at the same time establish, but she's not the person we're seeing, you know, the story through. We're not seeing it through her eyes. So I remember really struggling with that and thinking, how can I let the reader know in the first line, like, this is not her point of view, right? So I had to say, according to the notes in her file. I remember, like, coming up with that line and thinking, therefore, you see, we only know it from this. It's, It's not her, right? It's her full name. It's her address we're not with her because I don't um, get to him until the second paragraph.
0: Right. But I think it's an interesting choice, even though, even though I felt overall it, it, it becomes what becomes his story, but having the focus on her and having the focus on other Holocaust survivors to me seems to fit with the uh, New York times article opinions article that you wrote recently about second and third generation storytellers telling the story of the, of the Holocaust. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, include that link in our podcast notes too because there's a lot about this story that's tied to that um, article so it's interesting that you put the survivor first um, and then the person that's telling the story second
1: yes and you know again I have to say it wasn't that I was thinking consciously oh I need to start with the survivor but it was a feeling right I kept when it began with Robert I thought this isn't right I need to begin with her
0: um and and, and then the drama, right. right and then we think the drama is her dying or her health but that's not the dra- main drama of the story um which we find out as the story continues so the story kind of holds that in its hands and slowly reveals that and deepens the whole story overall and it becomes the drama of both i think there's also a lot of humor here um which i think is really interesting because the story has a lot of sadness and a lot of you know some horrible, horrible things in it, and yet in this first paragraph, you have yet hospice had trundled her home and abandoned her. I mean that language, the trundled her home, and we get so much of her personality with after she insisted she wanted no more to do with them. Um, so we get her practicality, <laughs> we get just her absolutely. Even though that is paraphrased, it's not actually um, her speaking it, but it feels like it's her language absolutely. Yes, Um, and then we get Robert just some very quickly necessary description of what he's doing there Robert who had overseen Roger Fisher's case for the past four years, so it's just done so efficiently so quickly it doesn't get in the way of the scene, and then he talks about his job. now, Robert seems in a lot of the language in the story, he seems rather buttoned up. And I think that's a lot of what the story's about, because he's also not talking about his, his own drama or calamity. So here he refers to the doctor as, a fellow by the name of Turley. It almost made me think that Robert was much older or that this story took place in another time period. But then we do have a cell phone later and we have that his wife has just had a baby. Um, I mean, do you see him that way? It's so a kind of I don't know, he's almost an old funny duddy, but he's not. He's young. Right.
1: And there's even a line later when he we see Dr. Turley come in at the same time and he's an annoyed because he's like, why does Dr. Turley look so much more younger and fit than me? And he's and he's not balding, right? So there's this sense that almost Robert in his job is almost absorbing the age, you know, of his clients in a way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I almost see that, right? Um, because we see, I mean, there's a line that even says explicitly, like he's, he's just holding everything that they give him. Right. They, they can die, they can expire, but he is holding it all. So I did want it to be a little bit that, you know, he's almost prematurely aged a little he's
0: bit. Pre- and this. so we have other lines too, that I just thought, so here she's asking <laughs> in the star market circular and the, my favorite line slowly, so slowly. She pointed a long forefinger. I just, I mean, it's just, even though the story is, there's so much sadness in this story, but there's some real just lightness and just daily um, banalities um, that you're dealing with. But so we get this line though instructed to perform only tasks within his purview. That is very elevated, very old fashioned sort of language. And then he later talks about um, when she, Sends him pictures. Oh, um I've restarted meals on wheels for you. He had done so despite her habit. Now, uh, despite is an elevated word, preserving is an elevated word. Despite her habit of pre- preserving certain dishes, that's even elevated sometimes for weeks, to display on his monthly visits in order to prove their their unappetizing nature. So it's so. It's so old-fashioned, it's, and it's just comic, and it's and it's just a wonderful, and something else I wanted people to notice, just, and this is a very small thing in this story, but notice the lack of dialogue tags, uh, which I think is an interesting thing to do in a story that's about people speaking up about their dramas. <laughs> um, but we get the action of the character, and then we get the dialogue next to that action, and we don't have a dialogue tag, so... And this is kind of a lot of writers know this, but some beginning writers might not. Her chest was concave, her knobby shoulders and elbows like the joints of a marionette. Quote, Melon is on special if they would buy two, unquote. And then we have Robert squirming his chair. And then we get, I'm sure your afternoon aide will be happy to, unquote. And then no dialogue tag, no, she interrupted just the dialogue. Also some ground beef, 80% okay, nothing leaner. And we also get a bit of her accent there, 80% okay. And then Mrs. Fisher, I've restarted Meals on Wheels for you. So again, no dialogue. And so if you look at that whole page and just track how she is moving from one character to another, um, moving between the dialogue without weighting it down with unnecessary tags, um, it's, it's very efficient and, and it's beautifully done. Um, okay. There's just a lot about this story that I absolutely loved. Um, So there's there's really, again, this divergence between his official demeanor and the fact that she's talking about (laughs) grapefruit. I mean, they're so different. And yet she's the one that's gone through all these horrible, well, he just has recently, all these horrible things. So they're almost acting like foils in this scene. Yes.
1: I mean, and I will say, you know, this is a story where, it, it, the writing of the story began with the opening scene. And as you know, often our stories or novels don't begin with the opening scene, right? We, we begin somewhere else. We often begin with the ending, right? We, yeah. Or we have some amazing climactic scene that we want to write to. Um, I This began because I was visiting my own grandmother who lived to be 100 and was a Holocaust survivor. And um, she was home because she insisted in living in her own home, uh, and, you know, was in and out of the hospital with all these ailments and complaining. And I went to go visit her and she really couldn't move around. And just like, get this, do that. Go to the, you know, and I remember thinking, this is awful, but it's also kind of funny. <laughs> right. Because she was, yeah. and I remember she was like, God making a meatloaf. You know and I'm thinking? Can you stand up? <laughs> I don't know, but okay
0: no but here's your meatloaf yes so Um, yeah
1: and I just thought I need to write this scene you know and uh I so I began there and um I thought this says something about survival you know there is definitely there's something here about survival and and when you look back often when you look back at the opening scene you see the themes that carry through in the story. And when I looked through at this, I realized, well, yes. so it's on the one hand, it's comic that they're talking about the star market flyer and they're talking about grapefruit. Um, And yet there are these other themes that come through. You know, when I wrote the line, $2 for grapefruit is criminal. I mean, that's my grandmother. She says that she or she said that, right?
0: Yeah,
1: that this price is criminal. But (laughs) I think. And yet then we're talking about the Holocaust, that was truly criminal, right? I mean, we're talking about these people who have survived something that was actually a a truly criminal act, right? (laughs) Um, This is what she's talking about. And the food, which in this story does reemerge. I mean, she starts it, she plants the seed here. She says, go get me this food. But then she's saying, I see your wife isn't feeding you. She's going to want to feed him. We're gonna hear by the end of the story when she shares a personal anecdote with him it's going to be the one that allows him to open up and tell him tell her his truth well it's going to be about food in fact
0: yeah yeah
1: you and know because so people starved yeah. during the war right that 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 doesn't leave you
0: yeah and it's so, it's so simply done, and the story just sits and gives its truths to us without interpreting for us, and it just, it just becomes itself. Um, there's a, So there's a lot of withholding throughout the whole story. I mean, we don't find out that she's a Holocaust survivor until the very end of that section, I don't think, right? Mm-hmm. No. Um, and then we get a lot more background about the other, holo- that he actually works for an organization that helps to support Holocaust survivors, and he hears a lot from their stories, and we get little bits of their of their stories that are all really quite horrific, um, and then we get the one Holocaust survivor that seems to hate Jews and claims that he's what Swedish or or Swiss. Yeah, yes, he's Swiss. He's not Jewish. He's Swiss. <laughs> he's Swiss. Um, so again, and 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 also goes back and forth between. Rose's story and the survivors and his work, and then his story at home, and what what has happened between him and his wife, and what is what has just happened. So we actually go back in time a little bit. And so we go through these kind of pieces of, of time and blocks. And then the story begins to come together, absolutely, and bring them both together. Um, it's interesting because there's a there was a point where it says later in the story, Dr. Tur- Turley remained that she ought to have died by now and he's talking about Rosa I think right yes and we also know I think it's we know there or we know in the next section that someone in Robert's life had been sick and and should have died earlier um, than than she actually did so those when that when I read that line the two stories began to come absolutely together even though it's not announced. Um, and it was really after that, once I had the hint of that, or the flavor of the stories coming together, that the stories then actually drew together because she gets him to talk about what happened with his wife and his baby. Um, so it's just a wonderful, wonderful hint. Um, and, um, again, this withholding of not Talk, talking about your own story. This seemed to be the weight that you carry and that you thought about when you were writing about this in the New York Times article. Um, does the second and third generation have the right to tell these stories that sometimes has been difficult? Uh, we have a fellow friend that was actually told that she could not write about the Holocaust <laughs> um, that um, because it wasn't her story and she was rather infuriated by that. Um, and then the idea that people that some of the first generation simply didn't tell their stories and now it might be the second and third generation's uh, responsibility to do so. Um, And do you want to, how do you, how do you think about that? So in terms of fiction, you're writing, you're writing fiction about these stories and your article, you kind of defended the right to write fiction about something that is not fictional. So absolutely not fictional. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, a few, a few things. First of all, you know, what's interesting is like the anecdotes in this story, right? He hears these little snippets of things. I used things from my own family, right? So these were things that my grandmother said, you know, there's, there's one line, for instance, um, as an example, where um, of a woman's who always talked about how she had to try to feed her infant, brown beans because she was so starving she couldn't produce milk you know and that's something my grandmother would always talk about for my aunt right and she sort mm-hmm. of start crying oh my god I had to give her ground beans and it gave her stomach ache right but she said my aunt survived um and so these little things that I remember I remember I put them in uh I want to save them this yeah. is true this really happened now at the same time there are things that I put in because I remember hearing them, you know, another one that's from my grandmother is being lined up along the Danube to be shot. Right. And then, and being allowed to go because the person who was supposed to shoot her and my father and my and his sister, for whatever reason, decided I'm letting you go run, go ahead. Right. But shooting every, every the other people were all shot. Right. So these are anecdotes I'm like telling retelling them but I don't know exactly how that happened (laughs) like what I don't understand was it like like he thought you were pretty he he felt bad because you had two kids where I don't I can't really picture it so I'm I retell it so if I'm telling it as history I might be telling a false history right right I'm I'm delivering something that was told to me many times by my grandmother so I feel actually more comfortable telling it as fiction because yeah. it's become something in my mind that I don't even know quite what it is, but it's a version of the truth. That to me, I feel that as long as we have the core truth, which yeah. is this actually happened.
0: Uh, people even, important. yeah, even memoirists, they talk about the emotional truth of something and that's the, that's the important truth. But it's so difficult when you are claiming that something is nonfiction, to be able to stand up or stand behind that and and say yeah this is this is true i mean because you could have slipped you could could have included something false and it kind of unravels the whole thing within fiction however um, You have a little bit more wiggle room and I've also I've oftentimes thought that fiction was truer than nonfiction. Um, but maybe this I'm just such a I'm such a fiction writer there. And I thought also about, you know, like Colson Whitehead's um, novel The Underground Railroad, Um, you know, he, that is fiction, and he fictionalizes and even alters some real stories um from african uh, american history and past and includes them in the novel in this kind of fantastical dreamscape horror dreamscape um and it and it and it was so powerfully done and i don't think he could have done it otherwise i don't, I don't know if people would have read it well that's the thing that's i think often thing. with these
1: familiar stories also and i mean the holocaust is another example of this right where you we they become almost too familiar and i think uh, something like with the underground railroad it's also that's another good example right it's like oh right. i i know the story right
0: or they think slavery. they know it.
1: i know i think i know that right um you need to reinvent it and in yeah. fact he did this even through a, you know a, a, a genre transformation and that allows you to see something that maybe you didn't see before or know something that you did not know that you thought you
0: knew. Yeah, and then close to the end, so everyone, I want you to grab up this story and grab up this collection so that you can read the whole thing. But close to the end, there's a line that I thought summarized a, quite a lot of the story and what you were trying to do here. Um, so he tells Rosa something very personal about what's happened to him. And I'm not telling it, but just because I don't want to give away entirely what happens in the story. Um, there's a line that says, for those few moments, this other person held some portion of their grief. Um, I think that line was in reference to his, and um, that seemed to be for this few moments, this other person held some portion of their grief, the reason to tell stories and the reason to tell stories to other family members and friends and everybody to, to share those stories to actually hold that grief.
1: Yes. And that, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, right, there are also the times when you tell your story, and it's like, that didn't work, (laughs) this person didn't understand, but other times, wow, you have communed, and somebody really got it, right, and that there's a bit of, you know, something can be alleviated in that moment,
0: or shared, if nothing else. Right, absolutely, absolutely, and it's, it's a lot why we tell stories, and why we need stories like this, okay, Beautifully done, Daphne. Absolutely beautifully done. I'm going to have to get explicating, folks. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to get these folks to the writing desk, uh, but I'm sure mm-hmm. that they uh, will have fed off your beautiful words very well. Um, and the fact that it has this undercore, this context, um, this historical context, that gives it so much more significance. Okay, everyone, you can find our full schedule on the Substack page at sevenamnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. It's all free. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges. We did a crazy 50-day writing challenge in the fall and another crazy 31-day writing challenge in March. So there's a lot of amazing writers and thinkers and, and teachers of writing, giving their ideas about writing there. So I recommend that you look back. You can find all of those on our Substack, or you can find them on our, in any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can reach other listeners. All right, Daphne, one last thing. What advice do you have for our listeners about getting their own first pages right?
1: Yes. Um, I would keep in mind that the opening pages of whatever you're writing are actually instructing the reader on how to read whatever you're writing, right? Absolutely. You need to help your reader understand how to read.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Perfect. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. Okay. We're going to let everyone go. Thank you again, Daphne, for joining us. And I hope everyone has a wonderful writing day. But you never wonder why there isn't nothing here.